0: podcast is part of the sports Social Podcast network. Well, that's the end of the 90 minutes. It will be extra time. We hope you'll stay with us. Good afternoon and welcome to Ness and Dormer Extra Time. This is our little offshoot where we take a broader look around the world of football, and particularly football writing. My name's Mike Gibbons, and today we're gonna be talking to Jonathan O'Brien, a professional editor and writer for the Sunday Post in Ireland, whose writing has also appeared in the Irish Independent, the Sunday Tribune, and When Saturday Comes. Jonathan's just published his first book called Euro Summits, the story of the UEFA European Championship 1960 to 2016. As you may have guessed from the subtitle, it's the entire history of UEFA's flagship international tournament, timed for release ahead of the rescheduled Euros, which starts shortly and available now from Pitch Publishing. Uh, Jonathan O'Brien, hello.
1: Hello, Mike. Good to talk to you. Yeah, good. How are you doing? Not too bad, not too bad.
0: Good. So, um, yeah, just to start, I mean, one thing I'd like to say is I'll, I'll... when I uh, heard that you were doing this book, I was, I was really, really pleased to see this idea come to fruition because the World Cup has has had a couple of definitive histories. You know, Chris Freddie's done one, Brian Glanville's done one, but there's never been one up until now about the European Championships and I've always felt it's a topic that needed to be covered. Um, did you have similar feelings? Is that why you chose to write this?
1: Um, yeah, I did, as a matter of fact. Uh, I know that Chris Freddie... Um, Started one, but never got, got it finished. Some of it turned up on uh, UEFA's website about 20 years ago, but it's all now long gone. Um, I, w- I would have certainly bought one like a flash if he'd done one because he's a fantastic writer and a, and a nice guy as well. Um, but I can pinpoint the exact date when I started working on this thing. It was, uh, was Stevens's day, or Boxing Day, as you guys call it, 2014, and I was up late. The wife had gone to bed. So I stuck on some football on DVD player. Remember them DVD players, <laughs> and <laughs> um, and I was watching a bit of uh, Euro '92, and I was just sitting there and thinking, is there a book about this stuff? Someone should do some something about it. And I went searching the following day online, and to my absolute surprise, there was nothing in print. There was there was a Kindle job, but it was um, it was a bit different from the one I've now ended up doing. Uh, it was a bit shorter, so I, I kept looking anyway, and I found there was one done in French and one published in Germany. And apparently the German one was a big seller, but nothing in the English language market in print. So I thought to myself, this is, if nothing else, there's a huge gap in the market. And I think, um, I mean, this is is the third biggest sporting event in the world, really, behind the World Cup and the Olympics. Uh, And it beggars belief to me that there was nothing done about this before. Um, So I... That that weekend I, I just started on. I did some stuff about ninety-two. I think the first match I did was um the Dutch beating the Germans 3-1 in Gothenburg, an absolutely fabulous game. Uh and I knocked about five thousand words out of that. Now obviously that came down considerably <laughs> later on. But um I, I was it was just on a roll and within about two years I had pretty much the whole thing done. Um and then the next three years were spent sort of trying to get it into print and also Hacking it down and correcting things as I went. Um, I edited stuff for a living at the Business Post newspaper, and that came in very handy uh, when I was writing this book. Um, like initially, it was way longer. As I've said, it was about three hundred and sixty thousand words that had to come right down, and it had it had far too much stuff in it that wasn't quite that relevant. It was it was initially just match reports and nothing else. It needed it needed more color and more stories, more off the field stuff, and pitch got me to slash it down to one hundred and seventy thousand, which was a big blessing in disguise, as it turned out. I think it's a better book for it. It's much more streamlined. You've got to um, strike a balance between the nerdy, anorex stuff and the off field stories, and also yeah. a balance of getting everything of relevance in while I'm not boring the reader to tears. That's the golden rule of writing, as far as I'm concerned. Don't waste the reader's time. Yeah.
0: I mean, yeah, it, it's, an, it's an enormous thing to take on. I mean, it's, was it 15 tournaments
1: over? Yeah, it's one, about 300. Matches. But yeah, it, was, it, was, it, it, it jumping from 31 matches to 51 didn't help, although I'll get to that later. Um, <laughs> but it was, so, it was so much fun to do. Like, I mean, the only time it remotely felt like hard work was I sat down and watched the 1968 semifinal between England and Yugoslavia in Florence. Oh yeah, and it was is possibly the dirtiest game I've ever seen. But worse even than that, it was incredibly boring. Uh, it it felt like doing penance watching this thing. I almost put the DVD in the bin when I finished. It was that bad. <laughs> and that was the I, it's, if you read that particular page in the book, you can see my my boredom and barely suppressed anger coming out as I wrote. <laughs> um, but other than that, it's just such a blast to go through all these old matches and see stuff you'd completely forgotten about and names you hadn't heard in decades it was just huge fun didn't feel like working the slightest apart from that one thing
0: yeah I mean I I hadn't seen that much ever but I've read about it and there's I think there's something like sixty fouls in it so so I thought one every 90 90 seconds or something it's
1: ridiculous yeah (laughs) I mean you get the English perspective obviously they're going to side with their own team but uh, now obviously I'm an Irishman and I'm not that mad about the England team, but I do have to say, watching that game, I I thought England were slightly the dirtier of the two teams. Yeah. Uh, there's an awful, there's an awful incident in the first couple of minutes where um, Ivica Osim, who later managed Yugoslavia at Italia '90, he was their playmaker back then, and Norman Hunter just comes up to him and just just absolutely disembowels him nearly. And there was no substitutes in those days, and Osim had to stay on the field. He could barely walk, never mind run. Um, there was there was also a player on the Yugoslavian team called Dobrivoye Trivich who again just wandered around the pitch all night, just kicking people, and didn't get sent off. He provoked Alan Mullery at the end, but uh, it was it was a dreadful, dreadful match and um, a dreadful tournament in general. I think it was easily the worst of all the nineteen sixty eight. Every everyone always says nineteen eighty, but nineteen eighty had a couple of good games, and it had Baron Schuster. Yeah, uh, nineteen sixty eight had nothing really.
0: So on to the tournament then. I mean, it got a comparatively late start. If you compare it if you think of it, you know, the Copa America and the World Cup and like the Africa Cup of Nations, they all got going before the European Championship. I mean, why why did it take so long to get off the ground? And you know, why do you think its early editions were, you know, quite modest affairs? These got fourteen tournaments.
1: Well, um, obviously the, the man behind the whole thing was Henri Delaunay and he was quite sick. He he died about seven years before the first one kicked off in 1960. He died in 1953. Um, his son took over from him at UEFA and kind of kept the whole thing rolling. The opening chapter of the book, there's a lot of stuff about that, about the, the endless meetings. and the A lot of the national associations were very, um, they're just very suspicious of it. Um, yeah. England sat out the first one, so did Italy, so did the Germans. The Germans sat out the first two. Yeah. Um, West Germany were managed by Sepp Herberger at the time and he um he he was implacably opposed to this thing. Uh the Germans didn't enter it until Helmut Schön took over from him after the after what was it? Um I can't remember what year Schön came in, was it sixty six or sixty five? Not sure. But anyway, um Herberger hated the whole idea. And as it turned out, it blew up in his face because West Germany went off to the World Cup in Chile in sixty two. Um having played only four competitive matches in two years, which were their qualifiers against, I think, Yugoslavia and Northern Ireland. And uh, they ended up in the quarterfinals and they were rusty as hell. And actually, actually, it was Yugoslavia who beat them, not in the qualifiers, my mistake. But they'd only played um, four games of competitive football in the previous two years. And if they'd gone into the first Euros, they would have been tournament-tuned to a much bigger degree. Um, England set out the first one as well. Then they went into it and they they got France in the final qualifiers, and Alf Ramsey uh went over to Paris and picked a team with five forwards, and England were annihilated on the day, five uh, two. I think uh, Ron Springett was in goal and he had a very very bad game, and that result it knocked it knocked England out. Uh, I I think the second leg at Wembley ended 0-0. and it it changed the course of English football history actually because Ramsey was never half as cavalier as that again. Uh, he, was, he was always, uh, there was always a layer of defensiveness in, in big games where England were concerned. He never, he never tried anything like that again. So you could say it had a big, a big um, impact on the future shaping of English football.
0: Yeah, yeah I mean, I think that's, that's one of the features of the book, I think, because particularly earlier editions of the Euros are less you know, popularised in modern football, right? And I think there's a lot of hidden treasure in this book in terms of, you know, teams and stories that um, have not had this kind of coverage before. Even up to, you know, like the, the great West German team in 1972, Penenka, I mean, people know about the penalty, but I don't think they really know about the background of it and, you know, where it came from and things like that. I mean, is that, um, is that one of the things you're looking to get over in this, in, in this book? Yeah, get, absolutely. Get I
1: mean, uh, personally, myself, I knew nearly nothing about the first three tournaments when I started writing this book. So, for me, that was a dive into the unknown. They were pretty modest tournaments, uh, but there there were some interesting stories in them. Like, for instance, Spain drew the Soviet Union in the quarterfinals of the first one in 1960, and uh, General Franco just simply didn't like the idea of having to play a home leg against these guys, these communist Bolsheviks, uh, with the Soviet flag flying at the Bernabeu and the the, the national anthem ringing out, mm-hmm. and he he effectively just ordered the Spanish FA to pull out of the competition, and UEFA should have slapped them with a large ban, but didn't do anything. Uh, the players were all primed and ready to go; they were about to board a flight, and they were told, "No, it's it, it's off," um, which they were very angry about. Uh, Franco basically thought that there was a good chance Spain would lose, and lose badly, so. Uh, this obviously wasn't an option from his point of view in terms of propaganda purposes. Um, four years later, Spain hosted the thing and ended up playing the Soviets in the in the final. And obviously, they couldn't duck out of that, and uh, they did win it. But um, the, the Soviet players reported afterwards that it was a very intimidating um, atmosphere. Afterwards, there was a, there was a lot of um, there was a lot of just bad feeling. They thought um, yeah. as they were waiting to get their their silver medals. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it, you can imagine what would happen to uh, a national team's FA if they pulled out of a big game, you know, with a week's notice or a few days' notice. Uh, they would have the book thrown at them. But back then, it was a very, very different story. It was different times. And um, the Spanish FA was very powerful regionally in UEFA. So that's why UEFA did nothing. Um, as regards... Um, the event as a whole. I think it only really got going in 72 with the Germans. Uh the German football public themselves regard the seventy two team as the best they've ever had. And after watching I, I watched their their four games against England twice and then Belgium and the USSR. And I have to agree, I, I think overall they were the best team ever to win the Euros. Um they just they had about five world class players and six excellent players. They they had they were absolutely it was just pure quality in every single position. They didn't have a weak link. Watching them in the final against the USSR in Brussels, the USSR were a very strong outfit themselves. They, they had a lot of good players. And the Germans simply broke them over their knee. It, it could have been 8-0 or 9-0 very easily. The Soviet keeper, um, Yevhen Rudakov, had a stormer, and he had to, because it would have been an absolute humiliation otherwise. Yeah, I mean, uh, one, one of the
0: things I really love about the Euros is that um players can really build a reputation here um, internationally if, if they haven't had the chance or haven't done it at the World Cup. I mean, Gunter Nets would be the kind of classic example of, uh, from out of that 72 team. Whereas conversely, you know, someone like Johan Cruyff, I think he only played one game in the Euros, didn't he, in 1976? Now that sort of set to with uh, with Clyde Thomas and, and all of that. But um, yeah, That's I, yeah, and I, I just, I, I do love this tournament for that in the... Um, it's a kind of alternative way of making your name in international football. I think. Would you agree with
1: that? Yeah, there's there's certain players who did. now it's it's not so much the case anymore because the Euros has become such a big corporate event. Mm-hmm. But certainly back in the day, there were a lot of players who sparkled in the Euros, but for one reason or another, didn't didn't uh, shine in a World Cup or didn't get to someone like um, Rui Jordão of Portugal, who scored twice in the semi final in '84. Um, the late Rui Jordão, he'd be a good example. Also. Um, well, Schuster. Schuster's the classic example. Um, he only played in two games himself in, in 1980, but he was absolutely brilliant in both of them against the uh, Dutch and the Belgians. And for for various reasons, not only did he never play in a World Cup, he didn't play in another Euro. I think he, he missed 84 because um, he, he skipped the qualifier to be at the birth of his daughter and the, the DFB didn't like that, so that was the end of him. Um, but he, he's a great example of somebody who, if he'd done... What he did in the Euros in a World Cup he'd be even more famous not that he's obscure obviously he's he's pretty famous but yeah I think certainly in the old days there was a bit of that um the World Cup would give you a bigger platform but I think I don't think that's been true since probably about the mid 90s yeah
0: so I mean yeah the tournament's gradually expanded and I think this is a kind of expansion that reflects not just the changing map of Europe, but also the kind of importance of the tournament itself. And you, you touched a bit earlier on politics, um, you know, with Franco and the, the Soviet Union. But that—that that is, that is a backdrop to this tournament, isn't it? In the way that um, the way that it's developed over time, and it's it's amazing to think that as late as 1992, it was still an 18 tournament. It's, uh... Yeah,
1: UEFA's um, force, UEFA's hand, I should say, was forced um, because. Well, first of all, uh, Yugoslavia had to sit that one out because of the war. And Denmark, as we know, came in and won it uh, on the hoof. But following that, of course, um, the Soviet Union had broken up about six months earlier. Uh, Czechoslovakia then split in two peacefully. And of course, all the Yugoslav republics themselves um, uh, peeled off as well in the wake of the civil war. So UEFA's membership jumped by about 17 or 18 countries. Uh and so, uh, from that moment on, you had bigger qualifying groups. Like in in the old days, it wasn't uncommon to have three teams in a group. Now you had five, six, seven. I think. Well, I think one of the groups for Euro two thousand eight had eight teams in it. Uh, it was it was a group that Poland and Portugal came out of. I think, um, and of course, in that same group, Azerbaijan and Armenia refused to play each other, which I suppose cut down on the fixture load, if nothing else. But um, yeah, um, there was a lot of. Uh, criticism when it went from 8 to 16 teams Uh, but I think it was a I think it was a good move overall because while there may not be 16 really good teams in Europe there's certainly more than 8 so and also 16 has a square root so there's none of this messing around with the four best third place teams which is a thing I absolutely hate Um, and I think it's a god awful format It, it it was used at Mexico 86 Italia 90 and USA 94 and a couple of those were good World Cups in spite of that but it's it's a shocking format like in in 2016 Albania beat Romania at the end of the group and then had to sit around for the best part of a week I think um, to find out if they'd gone through or not and then I think in, in another group Turkey beat the Czech Republic 2-0 and this pushed Northern Ireland through like it's, it's just it goes against the whole sort of competitive element of, of the of the event I think it's you're you relying on other people in different groups to do your favors. I I don't like that at all.
0: So one one feature I've always liked about the the Euros is it's it's always produced really well not always but it has produced real left field winners you know, like Czechoslovakia and Denmark and Greece and it, it just that seems to happen in a way that it just doesn't happen in the World Cup. I mean, I think the probably the most left field winner of the World Cup is England. I would think. Um,
1: and possibly, think, yeah, you're possibly right. You, yeah. get the, you get the, You get You have. You've had the occasional um, surprise finalists in the World Cup, but like Croatia last time. But, but mostly that's been in the pre-war World Cups or the fifties or whatever, with Sweden getting to the final or whoever. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's produced at least four surprise winners, as you say: the Danes, the Greeks, uh, Czechoslovakia in seventy-six, and they nearly did it again in ninety-six. And even last time of uh, Portugal, I don't think anyone yeah. really saw that coming at the outset. Um, the other the other flip side of that is with very few exceptions there's this, a level of quality control in the European Championships that you don't really get in World Cup like you I, I think like what's the, what, the biggest win in the World Cup is 10-1 for Hungary against El Salvador at that time in 82 there's yeah. been a couple of 9-0s there's been a few 8-0s the biggest win in Euros history is 6-1 and that was the Dutch against uh, Yugoslavia Quarter um, oh, cool final, yeah yeah And Sweden bet Bulgaria 5-0 in 2004. Now, those are obviously heavy beatings, but they're they're nowhere near 8-0, 9-0, 10-1. If you look back through the euros, it's very, very difficult to find teams who qualified for it, who were massively out of place and had no business there. Ireland in Euro 2012, sad to say, from my point of view, would be one of them. They were just completely out of their depth. Denmark in 2000 were well off the pace. But there's not not been that too many others, really, has there?
0: No, not that, I can, uh, not that I can think of. Yeah, I've never, never thought about that actually until, uh, until you brought that up. I mean, uh, So is there, um, is there one particular edition of the tournament that you'd say, where it's for every reason, whether it's for the quality of play or the importance or because it changed the dynamic of the tournament, that you would, you would say is the greatest ever European championship?
1: Well to me there's to me there's two. I mean uh, I was I was eight in nineteen eighty four and I have I, I love it for nostalgia reasons. And not just the, mm-hmm. the brilliant games, but also things like the, the tango ball and the the various adidas kits and the phone line commentary. But if I had to pick one, um I would say it was two thousand. It was it was just wonderful. Um I had just started, I was a journalist and I was covering this thing for, for one particular paper. And it was it was just, like, you knew it was going to be good from the start because the, the opening match was Belgium and Sweden and you would think that's a real meat and potatoes pairing if ever there was one, you know. And it was a great game. Um, I remember it was a Friday night and I was sitting there watching think Jesus, if the rest of it is like this, we're on to a winner, you know. Um, And there was just no let-up from there. It was just brilliant match after brilliant match. And it had the one thing you want most from a tournament, which is great players... Proving it, great players stepping up to the mark. USA '94 yeah. was a bit like that too. Um, people already established as world-class individuals, emphasising it again and again. You'd Zidane, you'd Figo, you'd. Clyver um, had a great tournament. Francesco Totti, for the only time in his career, really, he looked absolutely world-class throughout that. Um, and there was a there was a great angle to it as well in the sense that all the teams that were playing ugly, dull, sort of cautious football, or or just weren't very good they all went home early without exception. Uh, Norway, horrible to watch. Uh, knocked out by Alfonso Perez getting that last-minute goal for Spain yeah. against Yugoslavia. Um, England were pretty diabolical apart from a good 20 minutes against Portugal. They went home. The Germans, less said the better, you know? Um, yeah. So it was, it was great from that point of view. These the, the, the teams that weren't really trying to play football got shunted out as quick as possible and you were left with a last stage that was really, really good. Um, and even in the final like it, it, Italy played very well but it would have been kind of a shame I think if they'd won it I've nothing against Italy at all um, I think they're they're great a lot of the time but um, if if they had won it with just that little tap in early in the second half by Marco Del Vecchio I think it would have been kind of a shame because the final always affects how we think of a tournament in retrospect I think like look at 2004 it's was quite, quite a bright tournament lots of good games but the Greeks won it, and again, no harm to the Greeks. They were doing what they had to do, but it means we remember two thousand four a little bit less um, affectionately than we might otherwise have. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so, in and so in two thousand, I, I, I thought it was it was just great that France just came back with literally the last kick of the game and managed to save it. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's rough on Italy. I mean, one of the enduring images of that tournament, if you ever look back at it, as soon as um, Will Tord scores the equaliser. The camera cuts to the Italian bench and they've all slumped down into the dugout except for Antonio Conte who's just leaning against it with this look of absolute desolate despair in his eyes. I can see it now. I'll, I'll never forget it. Um, it was almost like a morality play nearly that whole tournament. It was great. It was just belting from start to finish.
0: Yeah, I remember it to getting through in the semis actually. That's an extraordinary semi-final with the Dutch. who were you know, one of the co-hosts and uh, all those missed penalties. And, uh, they, were bit, they shouldn't really have been in the final to start with. I think they went down to nine men as well, didn't they? There was a couple of send-ins on. Yeah,
1: they, they, it, the, I, I remember being really angry about that result on the day. I was sitting in my editor's office uh, watching it on his screen because um, I had to file about 900 words about it um, that evening. Uh, and I remember being pissed off but again as with the Greeks in 2004 Italy were just doing what they had to do because by and large their players weren't as good as the dutch um and that funnily enough uh, they could they should have actually won it twice d'alvecchio was through twice on on yeah, van der sar yeah. and missed both chances um it was there was a lot of stuff talked after that match about the the eternal immaculacy of um italian defending and blah 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 but, in the end, I mean they, they gave away two penalties. they had a man sent off for persistent fouling. The Dutch hit the post a couple of times, and there was other things, so it wasn't exactly a masterclass. it was obviously it was a very brave effort but um it's it's been a little overpraised over the years i think
0: yeah i mean i I agree with you completely on euro eighty four as well that's i mean that's a ton and it's got a really strange place um in football history in the uk because it, it wasn't televised in the uk particularly um because because none of the home nations had, had qualified I, I think most of our itv and bbc were in brazil covering england doing a south american tours and john barnes scored his, his goal in american art. and um yeah. so it, yeah. it, it virtually made no headlines but it was this so there's they had this brilliant denmark team that had put england down. Yeah. They were just set um, kind on fire. France, you know, he had the putini the kind of, I guess it's the the Euros equivalent of Maradona in 86, just that, you know, he, he was so involved in in everything, wasn't he? And he's he's such an important figure in the Euros, I think, Puitini, as, as a player and a manager. And then, you know, Latouille was a, well, now disgraced <laughs> administrator, but, you know, he's the one who pushed the expansion to 24, wasn't he? In the-
1: uh, I, I actually, I start off the book by sort of doing a sort of little profile of Platini and Henri Delon and just trying to contrast them. Yeah, Platini, he, he occupies a singular place, I think, in the tournament's history. Um, I think if there's, if there's one individual uh, you had to pick out who dominates dominated the event like no other, it's definitely him. He still holds the record for the amount of goals at, at a finals. It's nine. He, he, took only not, he took only five games to do that. Cristiano Ronaldo holds the record jointly with him. But Ronaldo took about I think four tournaments to do it, and yeah. he's played about twenty odd games. Um, like I mean, Platini was kind of seen as a lucky general by the French. Uh, th- there's a bit in the book about uh, how Bernard Lacombe, the striker, is talking about like whenever he went into a casino, Platini, that is, he would always win. Uh, whenever he played rummy, uh, he always had all the jokers. This kind of thing. Um, he, he, um. When he was at Juventus, he was on the equivalent of about £300,000 a year. And uh, that was obviously very good money by the standards at the time. About 15 years later, like um, like that, that, those kind of salaries were dwarfed by what even ordinary players were getting. There's a guy who um, was a substitute on the '98 World Cup team called Alan Bogosian who um, played for Parma. And Platini found out that this guy was on more... He was getting paid more per month than Platini had got in a year at Juventus, and apparently, this drove him mad. So, you don't need to be Dr. Freud to work out why he started um, taking bungs under the counter and all this. Um, it, it was very sad what happened to him, Platini. Like, he, after he got deposed from UEFA, um, he was invited by the organizers of Euro 2016 to come to all the games anyway. But he refused because emotionally it would have been too much for him, and apparently he hardly watched a minute of it on TV. Um, so it is very sad. As I, as I said, um, that's why I I wrote the intro around him and Delaunay, because they kind of represent the two spiritual um, opposites of what this tournament is and what it's become. Yeah. So I mean, th- if we think then that
0: sort of Putini is maybe the greatest figure in the Sort of history of the Euros. We just sort of look a bit further out. So if you had to cherry pick uh, a goal or a couple of goals and a couple and a couple of matches that you think are you know the greatest in the history of the Euros, what would you go for?
1: Um I've always like my, my top three would probably be um in reverse order. Um Ronaldo against Hungary just a few years ago in Bordeaux, the one where he um Somehow managed to backheel it behind his own leg and in off the far post. Um, and yeah. there was another goal. There was another goal in that game by Zoltan Gera of Hungary, um, which UEFA ended up giving goal of the tournament to. And it wasn't even the best goal in that match. Um, the second one, uh, one that you're probably familiar with from your your excellent book about Denmark, uh, Frankie Verkauteren of Belgium scored an absolute screamer from out near the corner oh, flag. Yeah to put Belgium, I think, 2-0 up at the time, and they lost 3-2 in the end, but it was an absolutely wonderful goal. And uh, as you as you were mentioning earlier, probably almost nobody in Britain has ever seen it because this thing wasn't televised properly uh, because of England's tour of South America. And the number one, it's a very obvious choice, but it has to be Van Basten against the Soviet Union in 88. Um, it was it was just one of those incredible moments. Um, the angle was nearly impossible. Vasily Ratz was right beside him, did nothing wrong. Dasaev, one of the greatest goalkeepers ever, was in goal and still went in. Um, Dasaev is actually very um, sour about it, a bit like Shilton on Maradona's handball. Um, He, I think there's a quote in the book from him, he said, um, it was a stroke of luck, even Marco himself has said it, give him another hundred opportunities to try it and he won't do it that way. A keeper can't be infallible. But uh, Igor Belenov, who was playing for the USSR that day, said, no one would have got that shot. If that was five meters tall, then maybe. But that's it. But that, that's that's easily my favorite goal of the Euros. I mean, it's Yeah, it's a very predictable choice, but it's head and shoulders above all the others. I think.
0: Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to look beyond that, isn't it? Because I mean, so many goals are elevated by circumstance. I think, and if you think you know, that that's in the final. He's part yeah. of quite a, quite a, quite. A, Quite an iconic side to uh, have ever won the tournament, I think, and yeah, and it goes past a world-class goalkeeper as well. Um, yeah, it's,
1: it's, it's got it all, really. You know, it's, yeah. it's in the final, the, the importance of it, and, and it killed the USSR off pretty much, I mean, because they were they were coming back into the game at the time. Um Yeah, I, I think I think it has to be that one, really.
0: Yeah. So in terms of matches, I mean, well, we mentioned Euro two thousand before, and I, I remember on the same day, actually, I think Spain Yugoslavia which finished 4-3, Uh was in the afternoon, and then in the evening was a, a game between the Netherlands and France, which the Netherlands won 3-2. Just two that's extraordinary right, yeah. games
1: in one day, I mean. Two, two really good games. I, I do have a top three, and funnily enough, they're all Dutch defeats. I should say for the record, I have nothing against the good people of the Netherlands. Uh, it's just that they've been involved in more, the, more than their fair share of great games. I would say for number three, uh, when they lost 3-1 to Russia in 2008, and Arshavin mm. ran the show for Russia. Um, he was getting compared to people like Cruyff and Zidane and Laudrup. After that, he he was a he was a curious player. He he flickered very very briefly, but very brightly. Um, he he was a, a bit of a journeyman up until he was about twenty six, and then for about two seasons, he was just mind-blowingly good. And then he signed for Arsenal, and yeah, he got the four goals against Liverpool at that time. But he mm. he sort of faded away a bit after that. Um, but that, that 3-1 game was uh, astonishing. It shouldn't even have gone to extra time because Russia had chance after chance and van der Sar kept bailing the Dutch out. Um, my second choice, again, uh, the Czechs beating the Netherlands 3-2 in 2004. When I was researching this game, I found out that there were 57 shots in the match, which yeah. is an extraordinary figure. And as we know, the Dutch blew it after being 2-0 up. Um, Pavel Nedved had the game of his life he hit the post, I think, twice. Um, it, it could have ended up any score. And it was notorious as well for that appalling substitution by Dick Advocat, where he took off Arjen Robben, who was 20 at the time. And Robben was already best player on the Dutch team. And uh, about an hour has gone, and the Dutch are still 2-1 up. Um, and Advocat decides, for no apparent reason, um, to take off uh, Robben and bring on Paul Bosfeld, who was like 35 years of age and... Yeah. Not not a particularly good player either. Uh, There was, I think at at one of the Netherlands subsequent games in that tournament, there was a big banner in in the stadium where their supporters were, and it said, uh, Dick, does your wife understand you? (laughs) (laughs) And another gang of them uh, had a whip round and uh, paid for a plane ticket home to Amsterdam and brought it to his hotel and had it delivered by room service. So they, humour are nothing else. Um, and I think for for my top pick, I picked um that aforementioned Italy Netherlands game. Um, it was as I said we we've talked about it earlier, but uh, it, it, even right down to the penalties where Yapstam almost cleared the stadium roof with a shot that was so wild it, it was almost vertical, and seconds later Totti comes up and does a panenka almost as if to say you know. <laughs> this is how you do it. Um, there was a weird thing about Euro 2000 uh, that I noticed. There was a, a weird spate of managerial resignations and um, three of the coaches in the last four quit when they didn't necessarily have to. Frank Reichardt stepped down after that that uh, Italian game. He said, um, it's a law that once a thing like this happens, it's time for another man to take over. And then after the other semi-final, Umberto Coelho, the, Dutch, not the, Dutch, the Portuguese manager, he stepped down uh, and it was it was never officially said, but you would like to think it was because he was appalled by how badly his players had behaved against France, manhandling the ref and the yeah. linesman after Zidane put away that late penalty. I think um, Nuno Gomes was irrelevantly sent off even though the match had already finished and uh, the Portuguese players chased the officials down to their dressing room and banged on the door. And then uh, after the final, uh, Dino Zoff resigned as Italian manager because the well known football guru Silvio Berlusconi uh, criticised him publicly for not putting a man on Zidane, who hadn't influenced the game really anyway. Now, these, those were the days when managers actually resigned over points of principle, wasn't it? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary in that tournament, actually. So um, when, I, remember in, I remember watching England's group match with Germany, which. Um, <laughs> It's a game, because of the history of what had happened in the 90s, it felt like it meant everything and turned out to mean absolutely nothing at all. It's the, you know, a victory that uh, you know, felt massive. And then you know England just were completely outplayed by Romania in that final game. Yeah. And, I think and it just felt like what's watching England in that tournament, it just, and you were looking around the rest of the tournament and how other teams were playing. I mean, England just felt so far behind. Uh,
1: yeah. I mean- I mean, you look at the England lineups for that tournament. It's it's weird. You've Dennis Wise in midfield and Martin Keown at the back. You mm-hmm. would have thought those guys would have been would have faded out of contention by two thousand, but no. Um, they. It, it it wasn't an easy group, but England just they they were so predictable all the time. Was, if if you snuffed out Beckham, they didn't really have anything. They had his deliveries, and that was it. I think. I think their two goals against Portugal and their winner against Germany all came from Beckham crosses, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, yes, yeah. they just they just um, they lacked as they so often do. They lacked class. They they just didn't have any answer to people like Rui Costa and Figo. And um, the the Romania game was was a howl. I remember watching it at a friend's house, and just it was it was like all England's big defeats rolled into one. It just it just had everything like. Um, they they were one of the teams that they were there were no loss to the tournament because they, they, they just didn't bring anything to the party. Um yeah. there's, a funny, there's a funny story about their fans actually. Uh, apparently for the for the two games for for the first game in Eindhoven, uh, there was no trouble. And for the second game in Charleroi there was huge scale tra- crowd trouble. Um obviously in Charleroi they've been drinking um industrial strength Belgian beer. But in Eindhoven, they couldn't get any beard but so they resorted to soft drugs instead and they were all just wandering <laughs> around. Um yeah, no, I mean uh England and the Euros in general, they have a much worse record than in the World Cup. Uh, they they've never won a knockout game in the Euros, which is weird. They've they've drawn a few on penalties and gone out, and against Spain in ninety six, of course, they won. Mm. Uh, but the the only the only time they've if you can call a third place playoff a knockout game, which I wouldn't, against the USSR in 1968, that's the only time they've ever done it. It's, it's curious that I suspect they'll um I suspect they'll they'll break that duck uh, this time because they've they've a decent looking team. Certainly the front half of it looks decent. And they the the draw has worked out for them in such a way that if they win their group and get to the final, they will play six games out of seven. At Wembley, so I suspect they'll at, at the very least they'll win a proper knockout game this time.
0: Yeah, because I think if they if they win the group, I mean the the way it had, had been set up, they would have been playing in Dublin, I think. In the second. That's round right. Yeah, it, that's would,
1: right. It, was, it was looking like it was going to be Germany versus England. Assuming yeah. Germany won that group, which is very tough looking itself, but um, it's perhaps no bad thing. And this this is no slight on England, but uh, it's perhaps no bad thing that. There won't be a load of them in in Dublin for a big quarter final, um. I think I think it's six out of seven now that um they'll play at Wembley if if all goes according to plan. From um their group doesn't look too bad. They've they have, however, um lost their most recent meetings with the Czechs and the Croatians. Croatia was in the World Cup semi final, of course, mm. and England then lost in Prague uh, about a year and a half ago. I think it was. Yeah. Um, and of course, they almost lost the last time they played Scotland as well. Um, Lee Griffiths with his two free kicks, and Harry Kane got them out of jail in the last minute. Um, so it mightn't it mightn't be as straightforward for them as they think, but there's no doubt they have they have an overabundance of uh, very good young attackers.
0: So just just thinking about the tournament in the the present day, then, as we're, as we're talking about it now, I mean, where where do you think the Euro sits in the? Football calendar, because as you mentioned earlier, it's the third biggest sports in the world now, after the Olympics and the World Cup. I think in some in some kind of cocktail of like revenue and viewing figures, they they work that out. So it's it's become this enormous event. But then you all you also hear things like the the World Cup maybe going to being staged every two years, things like that. They've now got the Nations League that's attached to the Euros as well. I mean what future do you see for the tournament really do you think do you think they'll expand it again do you think they'll go to 32
1: teams well when when you're dealing with fifa and uefa i mean literally anything could happen they seem to they seem totally unaware of the the non-financial value of these events and too aware of the financial value they're just they're squeezing until the until the pips squeak really they're just all these expansions it cannot do anything but dilute the quality. I mean, you saw it in 2016. There were there were very few good games and there were so many games. Um I remember uh sort of midway through the second round which had eight matches, 16 teams obviously, um and just thinking like Christ, there's another 20 odd matches of this thing to go. And not looking forward to it. And if they're losing people like me, then they're losing lots of people. Now it, it'll always have a certain cachet, a certain status. But they really are doing their best to break it. Um like, the, I mean, the World Cup, again, is another matter. This 48, 48 teams thing, I can't see how that's possibly going to work in terms of giving us a good competition. Um, With the Euros, they can't really expand it much more past 24. If you had, if you had 32 teams in it, that would solve the sort of square root problem and get rid of the third-place teams thing. But there's probably only about nine or ten good teams in Europe, not even... Uh, you know, it's if you keep letting everyone in, like you just you just end up with a very weak brew. You know, um, yeah. there's also the fact that a lot of the, the standard, like in the '80s, you could say international football was nearly a better standard than say the top levels of club football. If you look at the big European Cup games in the '80s, and then look at the, the big internationals in the '80s, the internationals are way better, way more entertaining, more skill. Players really given it giving it loads. Um now the Champions League is, is has turned into this thing where seven or eight clubs have all the best players. And while that makes for a dreadful competition in lots of ways, it does mean that the, the big quarters and semi-finals are usually of a very high standard, even if even if it's the same old teams winning all the time. The World Cup, I mean, I think you, I think we started seeing the, the first sort of stirrings of players, not giving so much of a hoot about it as before in 2002 everyone turned up fatigued Um, players like Vieira and Skulls had played 60 odd games in the season they were on their last legs it is then I sort of started getting the sense that maybe to some of these guys it doesn't matter so much anymore you can see it with someone like um, Thierry Henry who I know he ended up as the top scorer for France uh, historically for the national team but with the possible exception of Euro 2000, there was never a tournament where he took things by the scruff of the neck because tournament football really is shit or bust. You know, you don't get the, if you, if you miss a sitter in a huge game, you don't get the chance to put it right against Aston Villa the following weekend, you know, you're gone. And someone like Henri, who always struck me as like, you'd see him before games, he'd be, and after games, even if they'd lost. Like, I mean, when the French got thrashed by the Dutch in Basel in 2008, Afterwards, there's Henri like laughing and joking with with uh, people like Van Persie. and that went down really, really badly with a lot of people. It's forgo- it's kind of forgotten now, but at the time I remember there was a bit of a stink about it. Um so it's possible some of these players maybe they see international football as, you know, this kind of curious adjunct of their careers, but not hard hardly to be all and end all. And some of that's down to finance and money. Uh but I, I just at the moment, like with all these endless reorganizations of the tournaments, uh, it it just feels like there's a tipping point coming. Um, maybe, maybe we'll see it this year. Like, um, I, I think like having 36 games to get rid of eight teams out of 24 is ludicrous. Sporting wise, it's ludicrous. Mathemat- mathematically, it's ludicrous as well. Um, it would be it would be wonderful if they went back to just sixteen teams, but let's face it, that's never going to happen because they've they've twenty extra games now to to reap more TV cash and match their receipts from. So I I, I, I suppose we're stuck with twenty four teams for the foreseeable long term future.
0: So what are your um I'll just finish with a final question. What are your thoughts on the the upcoming rescheduled Euros? So everything's been delayed by a year and. Obviously, the idea is to spread it all across Europe—I think across 16 countries in total, is not it? Um, you know, now, now, in the, now in the face of COVID, as a, you know, it's not going to be the kind of kind of continent-wide jamboree that they were hoping for. I mean, what are your expectations this summer for the tournament?
1: Well, it's going to be a weird one. I mean, with so few fans in, in the stadium. I mean, it, having 10,000 people there or so, it will make a difference, and it will be better. But uh, it's it's going to be a curious one. Um, I mean. We've no idea of knowing how it'll all play out until it actually happens, obviously. But um, it, I think, especially if there's an unexpected winner, if 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 a team comes from nowhere and wins it, I suspect it'll it'll always go down as this sort of slightly weird mutant Euros, not like the rest. You know what I mean? Um yeah. it, it'll always have some kind of a, a little weird asterisk beside it. But it'll it'll depend who wins. I mean, if it's a straightforward win for someone like Germany or France, then Maybe that perception will be different, but if someone like, I don't know, uh, let's say, um, Russia or someone or some someone who wouldn't normally, well, actually, maybe Russia are not the best example. Uh, but um, yeah, it's. I, I think it'll be a Euros like no other in terms of, like ha- having the stadiums only at you know quarter capacity or whatever. That that has to do something to the players. Um, whether will, will the sense of occasion be diminished? who knows we're not really going to know until until it all actually unfolds i am looking forward to it but not as much as i normally would be um partly cuz the last one was for the most part so dreary that it it just it just really showed up the, the folly of expanding the tournament so so much um i'm sure we we'll, like even the bad tournaments will throw up at least a dozen um moments of drama or talking points or whatever, even the very worst ones in history have done that, but um, am I expecting this one to be really good, no, uh, there doesn't seem to be a really outstanding national team around at the moment anyway, uh, there seems to be a lot of okay middling teams, but that might, that might make for close, closer contests and all that, but another thing as well, um, VAR was used at the last World Cup uh, and to most people's surprise it worked very well because it wasn't. Um, it wasn't rubbing out goals for you know someone's fingernail being a millimeter beyond someone's ear or whatever. Um, I w- I hope that when we see VAR in this thing, it'll be run along the same lines. It'll only be used for really really big calls, and not the atrocities we've been seeing in the Premier League for the last year or so.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you will have to write about this tournament one day, I suppose, when you do your revised chapter for a, you know, the oh, here's, a, here's a new edition yeah. of the book.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the, the draw has been interesting. There's, I mean, uh, Group F, I think it is the final group. Um, what's that? Portugal, uh, Germany, France, and Hungary. That's the. What was it? That's three of the semi finalists from last time, and a team yeah. that also got to the last sixteen. Uh, funny, if I was talking to somebody the other day about this, and he uh, he says he's convinced Hungary will not finish bottom. In other words, he reckons one of the big three to have a total meltdown. But um, we'll see what happens. Um, looking at the other groups, uh, I'd be intrigued to see if uh, Finland can do anything because this is their very first time at a tournament. Um, they've they've they never. Um, I think they only ever came close once before. That was Euro two thousand and eight. They needed to win in Porto to get through and they drew nil all. Roy Hodgson was the manager actually back then, funnily enough. Um, So it'll be intriguing to see how they get on. They have a big grudge match in their second game, I think it is, against uh, Russia. Um, There's no love lost there at all, to put it mildly. So um, might be worth keeping an eye on that one.
0: And as a very final question, I mean, if you you were going to put money anywhere on a winner, I mean, who do you fancy for it this summer? Um, Well,
1: there's a lot of talk about England, uh, for obvious reasons. Um, Germany could go either way. Love has said he's going. Usually that doesn't uh, help a team's form. Sometimes it does. Um, Nobody is talking about Portugal. Uh, You've got Ronaldo on his mad one-man mission to obliterate Ali Dai's international scoring record. You've got Bruno Fernandes, although he's... um, there's, there's question marks about how much he has left in the tank after Man United's long season, and they're in. They've got a lot of good defenders. Uh, they they're in. That, they're in a group, which means they're going to really have to hit the ground running. They can't just sleepwalk into their first match. Um, and of course, they they are the reigning champions, and they're not the reigning champions for nothing, you know. So yeah. um, I, I think uh, nobody nobody seems to fancy them at all. But uh, I, I think they'd be worth keeping an eye on.
0: Yeah, I quite fancy, well, I find it hard to look beyond France, but I was very, I saw them, the kind of rejigged new Spain team, uh, thrash Germany, but I think it was back in November now, they've been what, 6-0, but they look like they might have something going there with you know, some kind of really good young players um, in the front six now. So, uh, yeah, one of those two for me, I think.
1: Yeah, Spain have a wouldn't call it an easy group, but it's not, it doesn't look particularly testing. It's three middling sort of opponents. I think it's uh, Sweden, Slovakia and Poland. So that could give them a good launch pad into the knockout stages. Um, however, I was I was looking at their squad. I, I there's, there's a lot of decent players in it, but there's, there's, no, there's no Iniesta type figure. There's no uh, David Villa type figure, really. It's a lot of players who are all pretty handy, but as a collective, do they have the right stuff to coalesce together and and do something special, like for for the last for quite a while now, Spain have been just another team. the The aura of invincibility is long gone. Um, Louis Van Gaal knocked it out in in, in 2014 at the World Cup, and it, it's never come back. So, um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what they do.
0: Yeah, well, we'll see what it adds to the great um, sort of canon of European Championship stories. So, uh, thanks very much for your time today, Jonathan. Um, oh, just a quick, yeah, quick reminder for listeners. Um, Jonathan's book called Euro Summits: The Story of the UEFA European Championship, nineteen sixty to twenty sixteen, and is available now from Pitch Publishing. Uh, Jonathan, thanks
1: very much for your time today. Thank you, Michael. Sports Social Podcast Network.